Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of women's mental health at King's College London. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Kylie Trevilian. She introduces us to the topic of domestic violence and to research she has conducted looking at experiences of domestic violence in individuals with mental health problems. We discuss two articles, the first titled Prevalence of Experiences of Domestic Violence Among Psychiatric Patients, Systematic Review, published in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2013, and the second titled Experiences of Domestic Violence and Mental Disorders, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, published on PLOS One in 2012. Please be aware that sensitive topics such as domestic violence and abuse are discussed in detail in this episode. So hi Kylie, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about your research background and what led you to be interested in domestic violence research. Sure, so I've been working in this field, and when I say field I mean the field of violence and abuse and mental health, for about 13 years now. So before this time, when I was undertaking my BSc programme in psychology, I explored the attachment styles of people who had experienced childhood sexual abuse. And I became interested in this area when I took up a role as a trustee for a local charitable organisation near where I lived. And it provides free counselling to survivors of sexual abuse. So during my time as a trustee, I learned a lot about the high prevalence of abuse experienced by younger people and the long-term psychological impacts of abuse. So these combination made me really want to continue to learn more and explore about more about the field. So my last year of university, I then volunteered to carry out research support for the Department of Health's Victims of Violence and Abuse Prevention Programme. And on graduation, I took up an official post within the programme as a researcher. And when I was here, I learned a lot about the need to improve healthcare responses for survivors of abuse and that across the whole spectrum of forms of violence and across the life course for people. And I also learned a lot about the women's sector's movement in ensuring that there is support for survivors of domestic violence. So this work really sparked my interest in the field and I wanted to study these subjects in much more detail. So I was then really fortunate to find a post that was being advertised in the section of women's mental health and it sought to explore the mental health responses to issues of domestic violence and the post also offered an opportunity to carry out a part-time PhD. So I just knew that I had to apply for this and the rest is history. So the main topic that we're going to be talking about today is domestic violence and it would be great to start with the question of how do we define domestic violence? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we know from both the literature, the academic literature and the research that's published, but also, you know, within news articles and the public sphere, there's no universally agreed definition of domestic violence or domestic abuse. And a lot of the work that's been done to date around this field often concentrates on violence that's committed within intimate relationships. But there are definitions that include abuse perpetrated within the family so by family members. And there's also a range of forms of abuse that might make up domestic 
violence or abuse. And it, again, it depends on what sources you're looking at that you know d- will determine what kind of types of abuse they're measuring. What we know is that, again, to date, most of the work has been focused on physical forms of abuse, but there's increasing focus on non-physical forms of violence. And there's a growing body of literature suggesting that non-physical forms of violence may be as detrimental to people's health as the physical forms. So in the UK, our Home Office have a working definition of domestic violence. And up until 2013, that definition was restricted to people aged 18 years or or above. So it was violence committed within um, the relationships of adults. But they did a review around 2010, 2012, to really think about, is this definition still working? and, And should we be thinking about expanding it? Now, there was increasing literature in the research field, suggesting that people from the ages of 16 to 20 are at particular risk of experiencing forms of violence. And so after that consultation, they took the decision to extend the definition of domestic violence in the UK to those aged 16 years and above. And it's defined as, by the Home Office, any incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse, between those aged 16 years or over who are or have been intimate partners or family members, and that extends across genders and sexuality. This definition can include, but is not limited to, the following types of violence. So psychological forms of violence, so they are non-physical forms of violence that people might use in their relationships, physical violence, sexual violence, financial abuse and emotional abuse. Now, within the kind of psychological forms of abuse, this might comprise behaviours such as controlling behaviour. And they can be defined as a range of acts designed to make somebody feel subordinate to, to someone else or dependent on them. So it might include things like isolating a person from sources of support, whether that be friends, family, financial support, um, freedom away from the home. It might be means of exploiting someone's resources or capacities for personal gain or depriving people of their independence and maybe regulating and monitoring everyday behaviours. So within this, we now think about behaviours such as stalking, which up until a few years ago in the UK wasn't a criminal offence, but has now been made one. So stalking behaviours also might make up the types of experiences for people who are encountering domestic abuse in the UK. And then there's another form of, of abuse that's non-physical, and that's known as coercive behaviour. And this describes an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats of assault, humiliation or intimidation, and they're used as a means to harm, punish or frighten somebody. Now, the definition that the Home Office uses includes abuse such as honour-based violence, female genital mutilation and forced marriage. And they make clear that people who are in receipt of abuse uh, are not confined to one particular gender or ethnic group. Now, the Theresa May government wanted to think about introducing a specific domestic abuse bill. So a specific bill within the UK that would focus on issues of domestic abuse. And as part of this, they again thought about reviewing the definition that we have um, in in this country. And that review 
led to the proposal that there should be a further extension to this definition, which would include forms of economic abuse. And by economic abuse, they are behaviours that might interfere with someone's ability to either uh, obtain, use or to maintain economic resources. So that could be things like money, transportation, um, utilities such as heating, mobile phones. And it could be things that might also include the ability for somebody to gain or maintain education and employment. So this bill is yet to pass through Parliament, but economic abuse may be an additional part of the definition uh, in the near future. When we talk about domestic violence, we're talking about a huge array of behaviours that occur in different settings, so between partners or ex-partners or family members. So it really is a, a massive topic to cover. And I suppose one of the first questions that's really important for us to talk about is how common is domestic violence in this country? Yeah, so there's various literature that's been and work that's been done in this country seeking to explore these questions. And there's also been a lot done globally. The majority of work today has focused on how common domestic violence and abuse is among women. And that's because the data will tell us that women are more likely to experience these issues than men. So if we look at the global picture, it suggests that maybe one in four women might experience domestic abuse in their lifetime. Now, if we look specifically in the UK, we have a nationally representative survey, which is administered to people between the ages of 16 and 59 in England and Wales. And it asks them about experiences of being a victim of various crimes. And as part of that, it also asks questions around domestic abuse. Now, what the most recent data from the survey has shown, and that's the survey analysis done in 2018, is that women are twice as likely as men to have experienced domestic violence and abuse in the past year. So what the figures tell us is that around 1.3 million women have experienced domestic violence and abuse in the past year, and just short of 700,000 men. The survey data also tells us that nearly 30% of women and 13% of men have experienced some form of domestic violence since the age of 16. And what this data and other data tells us, both in the UK and internationally, is that repeated forms of abuse within a domestic violence and abuse situation, those behaviours that are controlling and coercive, as I mentioned before, forms of sexual violence are much more likely to be reported by women than men. We also see from the data in the UK that women are twice as likely to be reporting domestic violence and abuse from a partner or ex-partner than men. So if we include the definition which extends to abuse by family members, we see that the reports from men and women may be more similar, but when we're looking at intimate partners, women are much more likely to be experiencing these things. We also know from the data that women are around four times more likely to experience sexual assault in the past year than men, and around nine times more likely to have experienced these things since the age of 16. Women aged between 20 and 24 years of age are significantly more likely to be reporting domestic violence and abuse in the past year than women across all other age category groupings. So we know that people who have experienced domestic violence may have higher and repeated attendance at healthcare services. And the data around this tells us that in obstetric and gynecological populations, that the lifetime reports of physical violence among women are about 40%. So about 40% of women are reporting some form of physical violence in their lifetime. 
and about 35% forms of sexual violence. When there's data looking at accident and emergency services, somewhere, and it varies between when the research is done, so what time of the day, how many people they're sampling, what types of questions they're asking, whether it's in the past year or lifetime. The data there suggests that somewhere between 20 and nearly 70% of women attending A&E services might have experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. And that compares to about 5 to 20% of men. Well, the data in these health settings, but also just generally in the national surveys, tell us is that people that have longer-term illnesses or disabilities, including mental health problems, are more vulnerable to experiencing forms of domestic violence and abuse in the past year and maybe over the lifetime. So I, I just wanted to add one explanation to what I've been describing here. When I use the term experiencing domestic violence and abuse, what I'm referring to here is that people who are in receipt of violence from somebody else, and I'm not referring to behaviours where somebody is using forms of abuse against someone. Do we know anything about domestic violence within LGBTQ plus relationships? It's a great question. There is some data out there, but the research that's been done in this field is quite limited. It's an area that definitely needs to be explored in much more detail, both in the academic sphere, but also publicly. Now, the the National Crime Survey data that I talked to you about, they have information on people's gender, sexuality and identities. And so there is scope within that data to explore that. We also know that the few studies that have been done in this area suggest that these groups may also be more vulnerable to experiencing forms of domestic violence and abuse in their intimate relationships. So there's an indication, but we need to have much more research looking at these issues. So what you've just described is is really quite shocking. Those numbers are extremely high. And so what are the potential consequences of domestic violence? Why is it so important that we are looking into this? Yeah, just to reflect on your point, when I started learning about these figures and how many people this affects, I also found it quite shocking. And that's one of the reasons why it stimulated me to continue working in this field and to try and raise the profile and think about how we can explore these issues in more detail. Some of the common consequences that we see may be physical injuries as a direct result of physical forms of abuse. So that might be things like fractures, broken bones, scarring, facial injuries or injuries elsewhere in the body. Well, we also see a lot of chronic illnesses related to the impacts of living in an environment where there's an ongoing threat of of abuse. So for people that are experiencing domestic violence, they may be reporting with things like chronic headaches, chronic gastrointestinal disorders or pain, and just general chronic pain. What we see is a very strong and consistent link between domestic violence and abuse and health are psychological problems or psychosocial problems. And they might be things like people feeling anxious, depressed, um, reporting feelings of feeling suicidal. There's also a strong association between forms of abuse and substance use or misuse of substances. When researchers compared the health outcomes of women who have been abused versus those who are not in a domestic abuse situation, what they find is that women who are living in a situation of domestic abuse are reporting a much higher risk of a range of gynecological problems. So that might be sexually transmitted infections, vaginal bleeding and infections, chronic pelvic pains, frequent and recurring urinary tract infections, and chronic pelvic pain. 
So based on what we know about some of these gynecological problems, it may give some indication as to why there's a high prevalence, as I mentioned, in in those settings. And when domestic violence escalates, it can result in a domestic homicide, which is when somebody is killed in a domestic abuse situation. I wondered if maybe you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, what we know from the data is that approximately two women a week are killed by a partner or ex-partner in the UK. And around 73% of the domestic homicide victims between the years of 2014 and 2017 in England and Wales were women. And of these women, four-fifths were killed by a partner or or ex-partner. So we're seeing quite a gendered picture there. Yes, in the same way that we see for repeated forms of abuse within the sphere of homicide. We see that, and globally, we see this picture that women and girls are much more likely to be killed by a partner or family member. We're going to be discussing two research studies on domestic violence and mental disorders that you have been involved in. Could you tell us a bit more about them? Yes, so these studies were an attempt to pull together the evidence both within the UK and internationally to really determine the extent of forms of domestic violence and abuse among people who are presenting with mental health problems and the potential for people with mental health problems to be more vulnerable to experiencing these forms of abuse. So we knew from some of the data that people who may have mental health problems may be more vulnerable and may be experiencing these forms of abuse more often than the general population. But at the time when we did our studies, we weren't quite clear how strong those associations were or how many people it might have affected. We were interested in looking at the experiences for women and men and to try and explore the experiences for people who might be reporting with a range of mental health problems. Because a lot of the literature that had been done before we did this work was very much focused on issues of depression and anxiety, which are very common for people who've experienced domestic violence and abuse. But we knew that there may be associations or people with other forms of mental health problems may be reporting with similar issues. And so what were the aims of these two studies? So one of the papers wanted to estimate the prevalence and likelihood of domestic violence victimisation among men and women across the range of mental health problems. And the other was specifically looking at estimating the prevalence of domestic violence among men and women who are using mental health services. And both of these studies are examples of systematic reviews. And the paper that was published earlier includes something called a meta-analysis. So it'd be really great for me and for listeners if you could just give us an explanation of what those methods entail. So the purpose of a systematic review is to try and gather all the evidence that's available that's been published on these on the questions that you're wanting to ask. So for us, we wanted to try and gather all of the data that had been published on the prevalence of domestic violence among people using mental health services or among people who may be presenting with mental health problems. And in order to do this, there are different, there are specific methods that you can use. But one of the things that you're trying to do is to build a good 
search strategy. So like if you were on Google and you wanted to find you know, an article that you'd heard about, you know, you, you type in various words to help you identify that paper. You adopt a similar approach using academic databases and you build a really good search set of search terms that will ensure that you pick up as many papers as possible on the area. Now, what happens is you get a huge list back of different articles that may or may not fit your inclusion criteria. And and as part of this, you have to go through, read the, we call them abstracts, but short summaries of the papers and determine whether they are answering your research question or may have collected data that does answer that. So once you've gone through that, you gather the, the papers that are relevant and then you look through those papers and take out the data that would be reporting on the question that you're interested in. So in this case, any data on how many people in that study had experienced domestic violence and abuse, if they had mental health problems or were engaged with mental health services and any data in this case that might have looked at comparing those people who've experienced abuse that may or may not have mental health problems. So that's kind of what the review seeks to do is pull together everything that's been published in the field. And alongside searching academic databases, you often approach people that you know have written about these issues and ask them if they know of any other papers that's been done. You also might do free searches on things like Google Scholar and other research databases to try and find as much as you can. Now, with the meta-analysis, that's one way of trying to combine the data in a way that gives you a more robust or potentially accurate measure of the question that you've got under investigation. So if there are lots of papers that are reporting or asking the same question with samples that are fairly similar and that have used similar approaches, then you are able to combine that all of that data together to give you a a new figure, which might give a more global picture of the prevalence of domestic violence in this case. So one of the things that you have to think about in being able to do a meta-analysis is that you're comparing like for like. So as an example of apples and oranges, you wouldn't want to compare apples and oranges because they're very different. But if you find, in this case, a lot of papers that are apples, then you might be able to you know, combine them together. And similarly, if you find a lot of papers that are oranges, you can combine them together as well. And it's just a way of giving us a better, more robust estimate. And what did your two studies find? So the review that was looking at the prevalence of domestic violence victimisation among men and women with a range of mental health problems, That review found that generally most of the data that's been published to date was focused on women. So there was less data on men, which we were expecting, as I mentioned before, given the figures that we see nationally in the public sphere and also in healthcare settings that women are more likely to experience these things. I think that's reflected where the research has been focused. What we found from the review is that across a range of mental health problems, men and women were reporting experiences of domestic violence and abuse. So not just on depression and anxiety, but problems such as bipolar disorder, um, psychosis. We found that people that were reporting with mental health problems were more likely to be disclosing or reporting domestic abuse in the past year 
than people without mental health problems. And in some cases, we were able to see if we didn't have data on past year experiences that maybe across the lifetime, that they were also reporting greater vulnerability and more likely to be experiencing domestic abuse in the general population. We found that these associations were holding for men and women. The second review, which was looking at the prevalence of domestic violence and abuse among men and women who are using mental health services, that found again that most of the data that had been done had been focused on women. And what that showed is that about a third of women in contact with mental health outpatient services, so those in the community, not in the hospital and not staying overnight, about a third of those women were reporting domestic violence in their lifetime. And about 30% of women who are in inpatient hospital-based settings. We found one good quality study for men, and that found that about 32% of men across a range of mental health settings were reporting some form of domestic abuse in their lifetime. So those final statistics that you've just given, they're actually quite similar for men and women. Yes, it was just one study, so we're not able to see how accurate that estimate might be. So with the estimates for women, we were able to combine the data to get a more accurate estimate. This is just one paper. So there's definitely a need for further research to really explore the extent of forms of violence for men. And what are the implications of the results that you've just given? Given the strong link between forms of domestic violence and abuse and mental health problems, and the high number of people that are engaged with mental health services who are reporting experiences of abuse, it is vital that our mental health services know how to appropriately identify and respond to these issues. I think they're the key implications. Are healthcare services currently able to deal with the domestic violence that they're kind of encountering in their in their service users? There are some examples of good practice and changing practice. So traditionally, health services have not always been very aware of these issues. We see in certain settings that there's been a real push to try and identify these issues. So, for example, in England and Wales, in maternity services now, women are routinely asked about violence in their intimate relationships when they're attending their antenatal appointments. We see some some situations where GPs are routinely asking. But in mental health settings, the response traditionally has been very poor. And our Professor Louise Howard and I looked at the evidence base, not just in the UK, but globally. And what we found is that at present, about 10 to 30% of all cases of domestic abuse are being identified within mental health settings. So there is a big way to go as far as improving the responses for mental health services. And if someone was listening to this episode and was really interested in what we've talked about with regards to domestic violence and healthcare services, what resources would you recommend that they have a look at to maybe learn a little bit more? There's a great resource online developed by Safe Lives, which are a third sector organisation that provides awareness raising and advocacy for these issues. And they have something called Spotlight Series, where routinely they focus on a specific issue around domestic violence and abuse. Their number seven spotlight series is on domestic abuse and mental health. And this has lots of different mediums on their website. So there's podcasts, there's readings, there's videos. And that's a great way for people just to learn more about the subject. There's also an organisation called Against Violence and Abuse, and they have a lot of good resources around these issues. 
And there's a domestic violence documentary on YouTube, which I'd also recommend if people are just wanting to learn more about the lived experiences for people. So we've covered a really difficult topic in this episode, um, and it's important to highlight some organisations which you would recommend for support if someone listening has been affected by what we've talked about. Oh, absolutely. So for women, there is a national helpline. It's free phone and 24 hours. For men, there is a men's advice line. For LGBTQ plus groups, there is a national domestic abuse free phone helpline. And there are also a range of resources on the Metropolitan Police website, which directs people to sources across the country. Thank you. So if anybody listening has been affected by what we've talked about, please don't hesitate to use those resources. So Kylie, thank you so much. We've covered a lot in this episode. So thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So there we have it, an in-depth introduction to domestic violence. Thank you again to Kylie for joining me and providing such a comprehensive overview of this topic and of her own research. The resources for support suggested by Kylie can be found in the show notes for this episode. Please do rate and review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MendTheGapPod and join the conversation using hashtag MendingTheGap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.